Good afternoon, Risen Hope. It's good to be with you on such a glorious day. Amazing how beautiful it is right now. God willing, we'll continue with this weather uh, through to summer, but who knows? <laughs> Don't look at your weather apps. Just believe. Uh, I'm going to say a prayer and then we'll, we'll begin. Uh, Heavenly Father, you are glorious and worthy to be praised. You are worthy to be honored. You are worthy to be lifted up in our hearts and our affections. And so what we need right now, what I need right now personally, and what I know my, my brothers and sisters in Christ need right now is for you to come pour out your spirit on us so that we would hear your words in the scripture, that our hearts would, would respond and embrace those words with joy and that our lives would be forever changed by them, Father. I ask this trusting in you, knowing that you can do more than we can even think or ask for. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them and turn with me to John 6, verse 47. John 6, 47. We're back in the book of, of John, uh, obviously. And God willing, we'll be here for the next few weeks. Uh, and as you turn there, I want to just give you a brief recap, kind of a summary of what we saw before we, we, we stepped back from John a, a, about three weeks ago, and now we're coming back to it. What did we see in this uh, chapter, John 6? Well, you may recall at the very beginning of the chapter, Jesus is on the mountain and he feeds 5,000 people, at least 5,000 people, with only five loaves and two fish. He basically creates food out of nothing, and it's a miracle. Nobody there could walk away with any other understanding than this is a straight-up miracle, and something is special about this man. Jesus proceeds to Capernaum and ends up at the synagogue there. And uh, there's a crowd of followers, the same ones he fed earlier, are uh, there. They're, they, they come to track down Jesus, and John refers to these followers as his disciples. They're not the, the 12 disciples that we know from popularity. They are just people who are following Jesus, people who want to see if this is really the Messiah. And upon them finding Jesus, he does something surprising. He tells them, you're not really interested in me. You're interested in what I can provide you. That was verse 26. It, it says, you're not seeking me. This is Jesus. You're not seeking me because you saw the signs that point to who I really am. You're seeking me because you had your fill of the loaves. You want more food. You want things from me. And the entire point, really, one of the main central points of John 6, which we've resurfaced multiple times, is that Jesus isn't just the provider of good things. He absolutely is the provider. He is, he's, he's the good shepherd such that we shall not want, but he is also in himself the provision, the greatest thing we need. Verse 35 says this really clearly. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So the idea that has been resurfaced in this text over and over is that Jesus is the bread who's come down from heaven. He's the provision, and he's the only source of eternal life that our souls can have. And 
in order for us to have that eternal life, we must come to him, trust him, and receive him. And as we continue this passage, you're going to see that Jesus is going to really beat this same drum through to the end of their dialogue in Capernaum. So verse 47, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world, Jesus says, is my flesh. In many ways, these few verses are just a summary of all that Jesus has been saying in John 6. They're kind of brought into miniature. He begins with these words, truly, truly. Truly, truly doesn't just mean what he's going to say is true. It means, I mean, everything Jesus says is true. It means you need to listen to this and hear me. This is of critical importance. And then he says, whoever believes, that is, believes in him, has eternal life. So this is what it means to come to Jesus, to come to the bread of life. It means to believe and trust in him. And then he repeats here, verse 35, which I read earlier, he, he says, I am the bread of life. So you, you must eat this bread, not simply to get something that you really want, but to get me, because I am totally sufficient. That's what Jesus is saying here. And he explains why. He says, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. He's, of course, referring to the event that was brought up earlier in this dialogue Um, where God provided miraculous bread for the people of Israel while they were in the wilderness. And that manna, Jesus is saying, and really any physical provision in this world, all of that is, according to verse 27, food that perishes. It's not lasting food. None of it can give us eternal life. It benefits our lives. This manna benefited the lives of the people of Israel for a period of time. But it is temporary and fleeting. It has no lasting value. It may grant you nourishment for a season, but you're still going to die. That's going to happen. And what Jesus is offering here is something completely different than that. Something completely different. He says in verse 50, look at this. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Not die. In other words, there is a kind of bread in reality that by partaking in it, by eating it, we will never die. We will never die. That's what Jesus says here. This isn't like the manna in the wilderness, and it's not like the bread that you've got in your pantry at home. This bread provides eternal life. And so Jesus says in verse 51, he summarizes this. He says, I am the living bread. Just in case you missed the last 20 verses, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So this is unambiguous. Jesus is the bread of life. And we receive eternal life. We live forever by eating of this bread. To eat of this bread 
is to believe in and to trust in Jesus. We're going to revisit this multiple times uh, during this text because it's so critical for our understanding of the whole thing that Jesus is saying. For example, in verse 40, you recall Jesus saying that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him has eternal life. There's no ambiguity here. There's no mystery. To eat of the Son of God, to eat the bread of life, is to believe in Jesus Christ. But he says something in verse 51 that is slightly different. He uses different language here. He says in verse 51 that the bread that he's giving for the life of the world is his own flesh. So what does he mean here? How does his flesh connect to the life that he gives for the world? And, and we're going to see that in what's next. But I'm going to ask you, if you're not familiar with John the Gospel of John, and you're not familiar with John 6 in particular, to brace yourself. Because what Jesus is about to say may shock you. In fact, I would be surprised if it didn't, if you're not familiar with this text. Look at verse 52 and read it with me. It says, Jesus, or not Jesus, this is John explaining, the Jews there then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh, he says, is true food, and my blood is true drink. So Jesus sees the Jewish leaders there in the synagogue disputing. They've got an issue with what he's saying. It's clear. It's not. It's very apparent. And he doesn't draw back and he doesn't change his wording. He presses forward and actually uses language that is even more intense, more graphic, his flesh and his blood. So why does he go here? And think about this. Not only is there an element here, there's an added layer for this context, there's obviously this element of cannibalism that is immediately like universally grotesque. But then in the Jewish context, there's been clear prescriptions against eating any blood in the flesh for centuries. Yet this is where Jesus goes. Out of all the places he could go, out of all the things he could say, he says this. Why? The first thing we need to acknowledge here is that Jesus speaking in this kind of way isn't new. This isn't new. This isn't uh, different for Jesus. Remember in chapter 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And he tells Nicodemus, in order to enter the kingdom of, of God, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, what? The, the concept of being born again did not, I mean, we have the concept right now. Born again Krishna is what you mean. But there was no concept like that back then. That's where it comes from. And so Nicodemus was like, you're talking about me entering my mother's womb a second time and being born again. That's going to be tough. And Jesus is like, no, that's not what I'm talking about. The same thing happened at the, at the well at a lesser degree. Remember the woman in the, uh, the, at the well in Samaria? She's trying to get water. And he says, I've got living water that you don't know about. And she's like, well, where's your bucket? He's talking about something different than she understands. And he's going to do this throughout the entire book. He's going to call himself the light of the world. He's going to call himself the deep, the door that gets into the sheepfold. 
He's going to call himself the, true, the good shepherd, the true vine in John 15. All of these things that Jesus uses when he communicates and preaches, John 3 has already defined for us as earthly things. They are pictures of who Jesus is. John 3, 12, Jesus said this to Nicodemus. He says, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And his point there to Nicodemus was that the reality of who he is, who Christ really is, is something that we can't fully understand without him painting a picture. We can't fully understand and and rationalize it in its heavenly framework, so he needs to get out a picture book for us and show us with earthly pictures what it is. So all these things are not physical realities that he's talking about, including the text that we just read in John 6. They're not things that you and I can apprehend or comprehend with merely our physical senses. He is talking about heavenly realities for which we need pictures. And to just be clear about this, Jesus is not, and this is important, Jesus is not saying, all right, you didn't understand that. Let me find an example in the real world and help you understand. I'm going to use a metaphor from the real world. He's not saying that at all. And the reason why is because Christ existed before this world ever was. He is eternal. He has always existed in these ways. What we experience in our world, like the birth of a child, like the visible light spectrum, which we're getting fantastic presentation of today, and food to eat, those were all created at some point. God decided that they would come into existence at some point. But Christ has always existed. He's always existed. And they were created through him and for him and in full view of who he is. So think about that. Think about the the weightiness of what that means. He's not using these as examples. They exist and have always existed primarily to point to him and then only secondarily to do what they do in this world. They point to him. Christ is the real world. He's always been the real world. What we see here is a shadow and an echo of who he is. It's the overflow of his greatness. And they were created with him in view, pointing to him. And it's not just like this, if, and we're looking at it from a, from a point of origin, ontologically, looking back in time and saying, well, that's where they came from. But this is clear if you just think about it in terms of eternity. What will matter in a million years isn't if you've ever seen light. What will matter in a million years isn't if you've ever uh, ate physical food. What will matter in a million years is if you have eternal life. And there's only one place you can get that. Christ Jesus. All of these things in the material world are designed not merely to sustain us physically and give us what we have. They do that. Praise God for that. That's secondary. They're here primarily to emphasize the significance of our spiritual need, that there was a creator who made those things to point to him and show us that Jesus is that creator. Which is why he refers to his flesh here as true food and true, his blood is true drink. It's not because physical food isn't true or real. It's because compared to him, it's merely food that perishes. Merely perishing food. 
Christ alone is the food that verse 27 told us endures to eternal life. That's why this is so urgent. He says here, if you don't eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And just so that we we don't miss that, he says it again in verse 54. He does the reverse. He says, whoever does this, whoever eats the flesh of the Son of Man and drinks his blood has eternal life. And he promises that forever, whoever does that, he will raise them up on the last day. That phrase, raise him up on the last day, has been, uh, it's, it's been repeated throughout. He's, re- he's repeated it throughout this entire chapter. Verse 39, verse 40, verse 44, and, and 54 here, where he clearly says that the resurrection on the last day, to experience that, to partake in that, to be a participant and be risen on the last day, you must eat the bread of life which he just told us is eating the flesh and drinking the blood of the Son of Man. Now, before we move forward in this text, some of you may read this or may have heard me even just read through that passage and say, I know exactly what he's talking about, Jeremy. He's talking about communion. He's talking about the Lord's Supper. And I think there are some echoes here to Passover, which is the Lord's Supper. And uh, if you look across church history, you see it's been interpreted different ways throughout church history in many different doctrines like transubstantiation, which is the Catholic Church's doctrine on this, regarding to communion have kind of risen up based on this text. But I want to make a few observations before we continue. It's important to note that in this passage and in the entire Gospel of John, John never makes any connection to the Lord's Supper in in this text, ever. In fact, John is the only gospel that doesn't have an establishment of the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. The synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, do, which is strange if that was the intention here. Another factor is that we don't see when we do see this pop up in the New Testament, in the Synoptic Gospels and in the epistles that Paul wrote, um, the word flesh, which Jesus uses here in John 6, sarks in the Greek, is never used in those contexts. When the authors of Scripture talk about the Lord's Supper, they use the word soma in the Greek, which means body. But I think the most important facet that tells me that, that Jesus isn't necessarily making a direct connection to communion is the simple fact that he says in order to do this or in order to have eternal life, you must do this. And the one thing that grants us eternal life that we've seen over and over and over in this text isn't necessarily doing a specific act. It's believing in Christ. It's coming to him and receiving him. That's what eating and drinking is. He's not talking about a specific act that we do in addition to our faith or some kind of regular ordinance. He's talking about real, true, abiding faith in Jesus. Another example is this word feed he uses here in verse 54. Rather than than using eat throughout the entire text, he uses this word feed. And in the Greek, this word feed means to gnaw and chew. It's not just like popping something in your mouth and making a beeline for, for a drink. It's chewing something. It's not a single act. There's this, 
perpetual or continual nature to it, feeding on Christ. And I think in reflection on that, it becomes even more clear when we look at the the verses which follow. I'm going to start back at 55 and read back through it again. Or not through it again, but read from 55 um, all the way to the uh, end of the paragraph. Jesus says, My flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, listen to this, abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Then John tells us that Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. And his sermon is over. So Jesus uh, shows us here that feeding on him, when he uses that word, really means two things. I don't know if you noticed them. I'm going to go through them now. The first is this. In verse 56, he says, to feed on him is to abide in him. He, he, whoever does this, he says, abides in him, and then Christ abides in the person who does it. So there's this mutual abiding. There's this reality of remaining in Christ, abiding in Christ. And then uh, second, in verse 57, he says that the, the life that, that we receive here is coming from the living Father. He says that to feed on Christ is to receive the life which flows from the Father through the Son to his people. So it's not just a picture of a single action or activity. It's not even something we do with regularity, but some days we're not doing it. This is a continual stream of life flowing through Christ from the living Father to his people. It is a picture of abiding. We're rooted in this eternal life that comes from the Father through his Son. And Jesus says that there is no life apart from this food. You must eat this food. If you look closely, you'll see that he's specifically bracketed this entire statement about feeding on him, eating his flesh, drinking his blood by repeating this fact about the people of Israel. I don't know if you noticed it, but he said this twice. In verse 49 and in verse 58, Jesus repeats that clearly the manna the people of Israel ate in the wilderness only resulted in their deaths. The manna that your fathers ate only resulted in their deaths. It sustained them for a while, but its ultimate end was death. He repeats that on the front and the back of this statement that he's making about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And his point, his main point in doing that is saying, I'm not like the the bread the fathers ate at all. The bread they ate in the wilderness, the manna that they ate in the wilderness, only led them to die. At the end of the day, they, had, they died like everybody else on this planet. He says, I am the true bread that has come down from heaven. And I am the bread that that manna, thousands of years before, pointed to. That's who I am. To eat of Christ is to never die. It is to live forever. We will live or we will die eternally based on whether or not we partake in what Jesus is saying here in John 6, the bread of of life, the bread of Christ. And we do that by coming to him and believing in him. 
Now, that's what this passage is pointing to. But I think it's fair for us to step back and ask a question that no doubt they were asking. We're going to see that they're asking this. (laughs) Um, And the question is this, why does Jesus go here? Why use this graphic language about eating his flesh and drinking his blood? Why say that? Yes, it's earthly language. Yes, it's used to show and point a heavenly reality that we can't understand. It's incomprehensible outside of this, this colored picture, coloring book that he does here. Why not stick with imagery that's simpler? For example, in John 15, Jesus is going to talk about the vine. The vine gives life to the branches. We are the branches. That's a very safe and simple analogy, Jesus. Why didn't you use that one? Well, we read in, in, in John 6, uh, 60, that these people were asking the same question. Look at this. When many of his disciples, those are the people who followed him from the mountain after that he did this miracle, when they heard it, everything he just said, they said, this is a hard saying. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? John tells us, but Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Are you offended by what I said? We find out in verse 66 that they are offended by what he said because they split. It says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. I don't know how many people made it from the 5,000 men who were on the mountain to Capernaum, but I imagine it was a good number. This was too much for them. What Jesus just said in John in chapter 6 turn many of his disciples away, especially this, this bit about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Why did you do that, Jesus? Why use such graphic language, especially with Jewish listeners who were explicitly forbidden by God to eat anything with blood still in it? Yet he brings them to this place where unless they see through the, the picture to the true meaning, they will be offended. And they are. They're offended here, and they leave. But ironically, the very thing that they find offensive about this, actually the the notion of, of eating flesh and drinking blood is actually the key to understanding what Jesus was pointing to, the meaning that he has here. I don't know if you recall this, but the first time that God gives a, a, a command against eating flesh with blood in it, is in Genesis 9, right after the ark, the flood. Remember where God had initially told man, only eat plants. And then after the flood, he comes to know and he says, I'm going to give you every living creature to eat. This is what it is, Genesis 9.3. As I gave you the green plants, God says to Noah, I give you everything, but you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is its blood. So this is the prescription. The first time God commands man not to eat flesh with blood in it. And we see this resurface over and over and over again across the first five books of the Old Testament. This same command against eating flesh with blood in it. Because as the text says, the blood has the life of the creature. Eating flesh is, is with the life in it, the blood in it, is prohibited by God. And so there's this connection 
that, that is clear from the very beginning of, of life and blood. It's repeated throughout Leviticus. It's repeated throughout Deuteronomy. Don't eat flesh with blood in it because that's its life. That's the life. But Jesus here is commanding them. He's saying, eat my flesh. Drink my blood. To a crowd of people, think about this, who have been told their whole lives, never consume anything with blood in it. Now, why does he do this? Why does he tell them to do with him what is forbidden for them to do with everything else? And that, in part, may give us part of the answer. This is to show the exclusivity of Christ, at least partly. He is the true food. He is the true drink. Even though he's not talking about physically eating him or drinking his blood, he's not making that claim. He's making a claim here to his unique reality. There is no one like Christ. So don't treat him the way you would treat everything else. But there's something even deeper and even more significant. And that is the purpose that God gives for blood in the Old Testament. Listen to this passage. I'm going to read uh, Leviticus 17, 10 through 12. This is amazing. And you guys probably know this by heart. You guys memorized Leviticus. It's the first book we, we memorize. God says this to Moses and to the people of Israel. If any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. That's the commandment of God to the people of Israel. Don't eat blood. Why? Because I've given you the blood, the life, to make atonement for your souls. The blood is how you're forgiven. The blood is how you are forgiven. The blood pays for your soul to be atoned for. That's what the blood is there for. It's not trivial. It's not just about food. It's not just about consuming something. It's about atonement. It's about forgiveness of their sins. It's about erasing the iniquity in their lives. That's what atonement is. The main issue in the world, the main issue in this world, is not physical hunger. I say that full well knowing that physical hunger is massive and that Christians should fight against it everywhere. Starvation, famine, but that's not the main issue in the wor- this world. The main issue in this world is eternal sal- starvation, spiritual starvation. The main issue in our world is that we are all sinners separated from God. We're broken sinners who live lives that dishonor God. We don't even realize we're dishonoring Him, but we're just ignoring Him. We're not giving Him the time of day. We're not thinking about Him in our thoughts. And therefore, we are, all of us, all seven and a half billion people on this planet need forgiveness 
in atonement more than we need any food. Because if we don't have forgiveness or atonement, as Jesus says, there is no life in us. Listen again to this command from Leviticus 17. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Bugs. <laughs> so now we know why Jesus uses blood. We, now we know why Jesus uses this language here. There is an altar. There is a place where blood needs to be to pay for sin. There is a sacrifice that we need to be participants in for atonement and forgiveness. And the altar that Jesus is going to go to is the cross of Calvary, where he will give his flesh for the life of the world. That's the altar. That's where this atonement's going to happen. In this passage, Jesus is... is is taking the, the people's eyes and he's trying to draw them away from being preoccupied with earthly things, with things in this world, with things that they think really matter. And he's saying, well, you know what you really need? You don't really need food right now. You need me. Come to me. Eat this food. Eat his flesh. Drink his blood. This is a very graphic language. And he's doing that. He's, he's speaking this way to show us that that without him, we have no life. We have no life at all. We must be participants with him. We must come and, and be with him in that sacrifice, receive the sacrifice of his finished work on the cross, his atoning work. Jesus takes the, think about this, this is amazing. He takes the most basic, fundamental, voluntary action a human must do to survive. Voluntary, meaning you have to do it. It doesn't happen automatically. You have to eat. You have to drink. And he's saying, you know what that points to? Me. It points to me what you really need. This is the most pressing thing in your life. In, 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 with, with respect to eternity, for every single human being, this is the most pressing thing in their lives right now, to eat this food, to drink this drink. Because as Jesus says, whoever feeds on my life or flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, guaranteed. This is the only pathway to eternal life. There is no other. Nothing else will meet this need. Nothing else will provide us with everlasting life. But when you come to him and when you eat and drink of Christ, when he is your food and he is your drink, you have eternal life. And while I was, uh, while I was preparing for this sermon, God took me in a variety of different places that we just don't have time for today. But one place he did take me was Psalm 16. I think in part to, to nail this home that this isn't just in John 6. This isn't just in the Gospel of John. It is all over the Bible. All over the Bible, especially in the Psalms. And, and Psalm 16, I know how familiar you are with this Psalm. It's one of my favorites. David is wrestling with the certainty of death. He's wrestling with this 
fact that you all know called mortality. One day we're going to die. That's a guarantee. Apart from the return of Christ, there is literally nothing that will stop this from happening for each one of us. And David knew that. And he felt it keenly. And then he wrote a song about it called Psalm 16. And in fact, in the first verse in this psalm, he cries out, Preserve my life, O God, for in you I take refuge. So this, from the very first note of this psalm, it's about fear of death. I don't want to die right now. I know that's coming for me. And how David grapples with this reality in Psalm 16 of dying is not only helpful for us, but it's going to show us the connection between John 6 and all that Jesus is saying there and what it really means for us to pursue and to know and to embrace God as our portion. Listen to verses 4 and 5 from Psalm 16. David says, The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Well, why is that, David? He tells us, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. David says, God is his chosen portion. God is his cup. God is his food. God is his drink. He's not going to pour out a a drink offering of blood to a false god. He's not going to pursue any food that perishes ultimately. He refuses even here to take their names on on his lips. He's like, I'm not even going to bring their names up to my mouth, not for a second, because God, the one true God, is my chosen portion. The one true God is my cup. David longs for God such that if you were here and he was with you and you were, you were right across from him and you said, I can offer you anything in the world, anything in the world, he'd say, well, I prefer God. Thank you. This is what David does as he's struggling with his fear of death. He centers his mind on what he wants. I want you, Father, as my portion. I want God, not just as my protection, He has that in this psalm. Not just as someone who is providing something for him. He wants God as his portion in and of God. I want you as my food, as my drink. And what's amazing about Psalm 16 is that in receiving God as his portion, David finds the only true source of eternal life in the universe. And he finds that death isn't the end. It is simply a doorway to joy. Listen to verses 9 through 11. David says, Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being is rejoices. My, my whole being rejoices. Now, why? This is a psalm about struggling with death. Why are you glad all of a sudden? Why are you rejoicing? You're going to die. Your kids are going to put you in the ground. Why are you happy here, David? His response is in the next verse. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures 
forevermore. This is the promise of eternal life. He's saying that in making God your chosen portion, in coming to to Christ as your true food and true drink, the true food that your soul desperately needs, in doing that, you find true, lasting joy. You find pleasures that will never end, even if you're on your deathbed. Even if you're minutes away from breathing your last breath, this right here, this reality, will hold you there until you're brought into glory. Because as he says here, my flesh will dwell secure. I'm not worried about it. I'm going to get through to the other side. You won't abandon my soul to Sheol. You won't let me see corruption eternally. This is a promise of the resurrection. When all things are made new, he promises to raise us up. That's what David's looking at a thousand years before Jesus says these words. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. In other words, make me your chosen portion, and I promise you, you will live forever. That's the promise of Christ. That's what David is seeing here a thousand years before Jesus even walks on this planet. And, and, and I just, I want, we need to grasp this. I think when we hear eternal life, we're like, okay, that's eternal, that's a long time. Life, that means living, so living for a long time, that's great. But that's not just, that's not what's here. Look at verse 11 here again. You make known to me the path of life in your presence. Listen to me. There is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I don't know what categories you have for joy and pleasure. But this verse breaks all of them into a thousand pieces. He's talking about matchless, unequaled joy. The greatest joy you've ever had in this life is a pale shadow compared to what he's describing here. He's saying pleasures forevermore. That's not for 80 years. That's not for 80 trillion years. He actually does mean it will never end. We don't even have, it's impossible for us to even conceive of in our current state. Endless joy in his presence. We are finally home with the one for whom we have longed for, the one for whom we were made. That's the path of life. That's what it means to have God as your chosen portion. And I'm being real when I say this, like, you were made for this. You were created by God, every molecule of you, to experience this. To eat this bread and to drink of this Christ. Every time we eat physical food, And we do it a lot. Every time we eat physical food, it is a reminder of what we were really made for. We were made for him. We were made to know him. We were made to to come to him, to embrace him and his atoning sacrifice, what he did for us on the cross, his flesh and blood pinned to a tree 2,000 years ago for the sins of the world so that everyone would know. Without that atoning sacrifice, there is no life, there is no joy, there is no pleasure in his, in his presence. And I, I want to just sit on this for just a second before we close. 
If we don't do this, there is no eternal life. If we don't come to him as the bread of life and receive him and embrace him and enjoy him, we are cut off from him for all eternity. It is a forfeiture of the true food and the true drink. C.S. Lewis put it like this. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. He goes and says, all who choose hell or all who are in hell choose it. And I think his point is this. They've given themselves to the food that perishes, not to the bread of eternal life. They've given themselves, they've chosen a, a food that cannot satisfy them and will fade into eternity. And they haven't chosen him. They don't, I, we live in a world where people think that everybody goes to heaven. And one of the reasons they think everybody goes to heaven is they imagine heaven is this one place where you go to and it's really nice. Um, and the reality is that God is heaven. If God isn't there, then it isn't heaven. The reason we go to heaven is to be with God. It's being at his right hand. It's experiencing him as our treasure, as our chosen portion. That's what we were created for. That's why God made us. Your eyes right now, you have eyes in your head. When God made them, he made them to see the glory of Christ. It's the main reason you have those. You have voices. In a few moments, we'll be singing. The reason you have voices mainly is to sing his praises, to, to worship him, to lift up your voices in adoration for who he truly is. And the reason we have souls, bodies, spirits, the reason we have those is so that they would be, at some point when he returns, be able to bask in his presence for all eternity. They were created for that purpose, to know him. And so, pleading with you, pleading with people who are watching right now, don't deny your eternal joy. Don't cut yourself off from this. Don't, don't, don't cut yourself off from the only atoning sacrifice, but come to him, receive him, trust him, and know that in him you will have fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. So if your faith is in Christ and you do trust him and believe in him, I'm inviting you in the next song, during the next song, to participate in the Lord's Supper. There's single-serve communion cups uh, down there, and when the song starts, we can, you can go down there and grab them. And uh, as you do, I want you to consider, consider him. I know I made a distinction between the elements and this story, and I think there is one. The reality is, though, by taking him, we are joined together. I want you to consider who he is. He is the true food. He is the true drink. He is the atoning sacrifice through which we have forgiveness of sins. And he's this. He is the only place, the only place in the entire universe where you can have eternal joy. 
There's no other place but Him. And so as David said, in you I take refuge. Make Him your portion. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, if we don't believe when you tell us through your Son earthly things, how will we believe if you speak to us heavenly things? And I know the answer in part is that what Jesus is going to say later in this chapter, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all, And so I plead with you right now for your spirit. The realities of this passage are far too great for us to to come to an understanding that we all feel comfortable with. We want more. We need more. And we ask that by your divine hand, that by your spirit, you would open our eyes, open our hearts to see through the picture, through the earthly image to the reality underneath that Christ is our portion. That we would eat of Christ and drink of Christ, that he would be our food, that we would, we would consume him all day long knowing that as we, we stay in the word, as we contemplate his reality, as we, as we even just pray or, or even just talk with others about him, the, the glory of Christ is coming to the forefront and we're saying, I'm eating him right now. I'm drinking of him right now. He is mine, portion. Help us trust in that reality and in the fact that it is the atoning sacrifice. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.